to go to Philippians chapter number one this morning. We took a couple of the sermon slots to focus on encouragement for the saints. Last Wednesday night, I gave you the first sermon from there from Philippians chapter number one. As we looked at Paul in those first two verses, writing of our privilege by grace and peace as servants of Christ. Today we are going to focus on verse 3 down through verse number 11 in this second sermon on encouragement for the saints. Paul is awaiting trial that will lead to his execution in Rome, but he has his mind on encouraging those that he cares about in this church in Philippi. Do you ever say of someone, boy, they are really getting on my nerves? I never have, but I figured maybe some of you have. Well, Paul says something like that here, except it's actually much kinder. He says to the church in Philippi, I have you in my heart or have you on my heart. So he wrote to them and he wrote about privilege of saints, how this is by grace, how it brings us peace, even though we are simply the slaves of Christ. He is the master. We are the servant. He has freed us, but. In this freedom, we see it as freedom to submit ourselves to him as our Lord. And here that encouragement continues. And I want to give you three headings this morning with fellowship, faith, and fruit. So let's read together, then we'll pray, and we'll get to what we have for today. Verse 3, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making requests with joy. For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers of my grace. For God is my record, how greatly I long after you all, in the bowels of Jesus Christ. And this I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that you may approve things that are excellent, that you may be sincere without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and the praise of God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for time together in your word. May we, your church, receive your word and be built up in it. We seek this edification. We seek this further sanctification. May your Holy Spirit guide us into these truths today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We begin with the heading of fellowship from verses 3 through 8. So already we've considered that in verse 3, as he says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. This is him saying, you, you, you are in my heart. I, I think of you and I thank God for you. I am praying for you in that regard. Then in verse four and five, he says specifically, always in every prayer of mine for you all making requests for, with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. I would submit to you uh, up against Paul's words here that nothing is quite as encouraging than someone else praying for you. Right. Knowing that someone else is praying for you. Being there when they offer this prayer on your behalf and maybe say things you would never say or you didn't know to say or you couldn't say. Christian fellowship is vital. And Paul's 
encouragement to the saints here in this thought of prayer for them is that prayer is key to maintaining this vital Christian fellowship. I was giving Brother Joe a hard time this morning. You mind me talking about you from up here, Brother Joe? Brother Joe is sure to always come to me when Kentucky wins in basketball and he'll say, did you see Big Blue yesterday? And don't watch a lot of Big Blue, but I like talking about this with Brother Joe. Oh, this is a side, hitting you in the side too, Scotty. I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, I'm not being carnal here. But it's to the point of Christian fellowship. So I, I came up to Brother Joe this morning because I, I didn't watch, but I saw some scores last night. Somebody beat Kentucky in basketball yesterday, and they shouldn't have beat them. Kentucky should be in the championship today, right? That's kind of what we assume were going to happen, and it didn't happen. And so I came to Brother Joe this morning. I said, did you see Big Blue yesterday? And that was kind of mean. But then I put my arm around Brother Joe, and I squeezed him, and I said, I love you, Brother Joe. I'm just joking with you. I figured you wouldn't want to talk about it this morning, and then we talked about other things. Well, in a, in a silly kind of sense, and in a not completely relational sense, that is part of this Christian fellowship. But if it never went any further than that, would Brother Joe know that I love him? Would I know that you love me? Would we know that we are together in this with God? No, what, what leads to being able to kind of rib each other in that regard is this thing that we also know that we pray for each other and that we pray with each other. James Montgomery Boyce said, I believe that 90% of all the divisions between true believers in this world would disappear entirely if Christians would learn to pray specifically and constantly for one another, one another. Amen. So Paul's in, in instance here is be encouraged and be an encourager. How? Pray for one another. So he begins with that in verse four and five. He prays for them. And then in verse six and seven, he says, I am confident of them. Now there again, there's the premise. If you're not praying for this person, you're never going to be confident of them, their position in Christ or any other thing. But in praying, you'll either become sure that they're not in Christ or you'll be confident of their position in Christ. And the Holy Spirit will help you in that regard. But Paul is able to say here, as we talk about here, this fellowship of believers, he prays for them and then he is confident of them. Look at verse six and seven. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers of my grace. Paul was confident that God was working in them and on them. Knowing this, he was able to have fellowship with them. Now we have this tendency to separate from other believers when we feel they are wrong and we are right. In fact, in the James Montgomery Boyce quote, I believe that 90% of all the divisions between true believers in this world would disappear entirely if my brain says, if everybody would agree that I'm right and they're wrong and they would just get over it. I'm not, I'm not the only one. You don't think this way too? If everybody just agreed with me all the time, things would be fine. No, it wouldn't because they, they would not be happy, right? Well, this is where Paul takes us to the next step. He was confident that God was working in them, that God was working on them, just as he's confident that God is working in him and God is working on him. That led to him being able to have fellowship with them, even in times where there might be disagreements. So we must avoid this tendency to separate from other believers just because we feel they are wrong and we are right. 
No, we back up and we pray for them. In that prayer, do we have confidence or not in their faith? And then can we have fellowship with them? We can have fellowship with other Christians in spite of our minor differences. I think of this and think maybe these very differences are what God is using to help me to grow or to help them to grow. Maybe your fellowship with them in spite of these differences is what God is using to work on them. We, we often like to think of the little children's song, he's still working on me. You gotta do your hammer while I sing this, right? To make me what ought to be. Took him just a week to make the moon and the stars, the sun and the earth and Jupiter and Mars. How loving and patient he must be. He's still working on me. There really ought to be a sign upon my heart. You're not going to clap while I sing this. I'll sign autographs after church. Don't judge me yet. There's an unfinished part. But I'll be perfect just according to his plan. Fashioned by the master's loving hand. Good little song I learned as a child. Up against that, we have this idea that God is working to perfect me and God is working to perfect them and together in this, maybe I'm the one to help them along in their growth. Maybe they're the one to help me along in my growth, but we are all growing. So don't be divided and don't be discouraged. As the church, we're to be united and we're to be encouraged. You say, well, yeah, but they believe this and I think that's completely wrong. Great. Is it obvious to you the task God has given you then? Surely it is. If you know the word and you're right on the word and you're aware that they're not, it, there, there should be nothing more blaring as if flashing lights and lightning bolts were coming out of heaven to say, help, help them with this. Now, are you going to be able to do that if you haven't prayed for them? Nope. Are you going to be able to do this if you're not in fellowship with them? No. So you're going to have to get on your knees, wear out some calluses on this person's behalf. You're going to have to spend some time and effort and energy and maybe some money to be able to build this relationship with this person. But then with that, how is that? What is that allowing you to do? Minister. To serve them toward this thing that God has made aware of you. That he's helped you on. And you need to help them on. My pastor was a, a person who spent a lot of time cultivating the ministries of young preachers. When I was a teenager in our church, it were me and five other young teenagers who were all determined we were going to go into the ministry. And. Three or four of us now still are in full-time vocational ministry. So I would say my pastor, and, and we're just that one generation. There are multiple generations. I think there's 38 men in full-time ministry who came out from under my pastor's ministry right now. This was a gifting God gave him, and he worked at this. But one of the things he was constantly having to work on us with, he told me one time, he said, you treat the pulpit like a machine gun. And I said, what's the problem? <laughs> this is great. I get up here, I cock the thing back, and boom, just lay you guys out and you get right with God and we're all the better for it. I don't see the issue. And he said, I don't treat you that way when I'm in the pulpit. He said, just because God has gotten me to a place doesn't mean I'm impatient with you while he's getting you to that place. And I see, my pastor talking here, my role as helping you get there, though it took me some time, it's gonna take you some time as well. We don't want Christian fellowship to look like that. We want Christian fellowship to, to just be like, you know, rainbows and butterflies. You know, we, we hunt and we fish together. Or we, we get together for these small activities. We go back to our own corners. And we avoid the real issues. That's not Christian fellowship as Paul defines it here. 
Paul notes, you are, we are partakers in this same grace. We share it. Christian fellowship is dependent upon that. There will always be some Christians that you dislike. There will always be some Christians that you have nothing in common with. But we are all still partakers. We all still share in the grace of God. The church will all be in eternity together. So we must learn here on earth to fellowship together. So verse 4 and 5, he prays for them. Verse 6 and 7, he is confident of them. Verse 8, he says he longs for them. For God is my record, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. This is Paul's way of pointing out to us that it's not enough to just tolerate other Christians. It's hard. There are those who think that it's okay to run around yelling things like roll tide. See? Thanks, Ryan. I knew you would help me preach this sermon this morning. So, thank you. See, we love each other despite that. And I say go dogs, and you're all right with that, right? You're, you're working on me. We, we've got to enjoy our brothers and sisters' company. We've got to learn from our brothers and sisters in the faith. The, this thing that we see as Christian fellowship has always got to be expanding. It's going to include other Christians. It's going to include some who you've never met. Now, how many of you are, you're kind of this me, my, four, no more personality? You kind of get your little, your little group there. You got your people. You feel comfortable there. You're happy. And boy, when it gets to add in this one extra person, you're just like, oh, it's going to change the element. I know some of you are, some of you are not wired that way. Some of you are like, the more the merrier, bring them on. But some of you are this way. Well, well it's not going to work well in the Christian faith. It's always going to be expanding. There are always going to be these new people. We are all forever united together in the Lord. And God is pleased by Christian fellowship. John chapter number 13, verse number 35 says, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one to another. Did you catch this? I know we hear that as, well, okay, Jesus said we've got to love each other. That's not what he said. He, he said, because of your love for one another, people will know you're my disciples. We've changed on that in the modern church. How do we want people to know that we're Jesus' disciples? I got the fish on the back of my car. I'm good, right? I call myself a Christian. Do you know the New Testament church never called themselves that? They never went around saying we're Christians. In fact, they never had signs out in front of their church to identify their churches. There were none. We, we can't find this archaeologically. I say that word right. It's a big word. But they had this love relationship for one another that the world saw as odd and unique. And they said, these must be those disciples of Christ. So the encouragement to the saints, it begins with our fellowship. Now, I want to back back into verse six and look at faith. The second thing that Paul notes in this group of verses is this faith element. How can you be encouraged as a saint? You say, I, I've got a bad week ahead of me. I've got some dread about tomorrow. We just saying, great is thy faithfulness. I have peace for today and bright hope for tomorrow. I saw some of you as you said that, you were like, Lord, you're going to have to give me bright hope for tomorrow because I don't have bright hope for tomorrow. 
Now, I would say to you about these doctrinal hymns that we sing. There are going to be times that you can't affirm what we're singing because of your own life. That doesn't mean you don't sing them or that you can't enjoy singing them. It means in the times when you can sing it as well, my soul, you praise the Lord that it is well with your soul. At times when it's not well with your life, you can still praise God that it's well with your soul. But at times when it's not well with your life or not well with your soul, or you can't sing it's not well with your soul because you don't think it is because of your life circumstances. These are times where the hymn is even more effective to cause you in that moment to say, Lord, help me to let it be well with my soul. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. And you've gone through a week where you're questioning God's faithfulness to you. Well, it wasn't by accident that God had to sing that song here this morning and convict you in that regard. That hymn should be preaching to you. There again, that's why we sing doctrinal songs and, and not lightweight hymns. I don't know a right word to say there. We, we, we want them to be heavyweights. We want them to accomplish much. Let's not waste our time while we're here. But Paul says here, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. No one God has saved will ever be lost. That's encouragement to the believer. God always finishes what he starts. That's encouragement. He calls us to be Christians. James Montgomery Boy says this. It is he who calls us as Christians. He who leads us on in the Christian life. And he who most certainly will lead us home. I I would give up before the end. I would lose heart before the end on my own. If I could lose my salvation, I would lose my salvation. But I can't. Paul says, I'm confident in your faith. Not because of you, but because of our God. John chapter number 10, verse 27 and 28, lays out this case according to Jesus. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Praise the Lord. Willie Wonka invented an everlasting gobstopper that by my own experience is not everlasting. I've tried multiple ones of them just thinking I got a dud. I didn't get a dud. They're not everlasting. They go away. But Jesus says here, I've given you everlasting life. It will not go away. You will never perish. I've got you in my hand and nobody, not even the deceiver, not even Satan himself can pluck you out. Praise the Lord. What do we have to be afraid of? Nothing. How does Paul lay this out? Well, first he says, he which hath begun. I would tell you this morning that your Christian life is best lived once you settle on the fact that God started this work in you. Just think back. It was at a time when you had no thoughts of God. But all of a sudden you can't get him off your mind. I, I, I just told you, I, was, I remember the date. It was March the 9th. I'm not saying to be saved you have to remember the date. I'm just saying I remember the date. 1994. I went to the youth guy after the little, little thing he gave us there and I said, I, I got to get saved. And, and he said, okay, just a minute. But for me, it was like, there's not a minute. I don't want to think of anything else. I'm not going to go talk to the girls while I wait for you. I'm not going to go shoot hoops while I wait for you. I have got to get right with God right now. And, and I think he could see that anxiety on me. He said, all right, let's take you to the preacher. And they took me to the pastor. And he said, all right, just a minute. I said, there is no just a minute. I couldn't get him off my mind. He wasn't on my mind last Sunday. He wasn't on my mind the Wednesday before. But all of a sudden, and I didn't know what was happening, 
But the Holy Spirit moved in. He quickened me. He made me alive. I was dead in my trespasses and sins. And this Holy Spirit of God moved into my life. And I could do nothing else. He had shined a light in the darkness of my life. And revealed all of this mess. And I just said, oh no. And so the, pre- the pre- preacher was busy. And the youth guide maybe didn't know what to do with me. So I knelt right down on the right side of the pulpit there. The preacher was standing right there. And the Lord saved me there. He began this work. My parents tried to begin this work. They nurtured me in the Word. They did a great job. I, I was made to memorize verses as a kid that I still remember today. I was taught doctrines as a young child that, that I'm sure of today because I was taught them as a young child. My parents tried to begin this work. My church family tried to begin this work. They, they, they made me sit through services. They invited in preachers to preach other things. They really worked on me to try to begin this work. But in reality, what I've concluded as an adult is all of that was great and helpful and useful, but none of it began the work. He began this work. That's what Paul says here. I'm confident of this very thing, that he who has begun this work will finish it. He will complete it. He will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. When you settle on the fact that he's the one who's begun this work, then you find comfort in the idea that he will perfect it, that he will perform it, that he will complete it. If you're still struggling around in this timeline of things, of how did this happen, when did it start, all of that, I would tell you just to trust the word. The word says he started it. This verse, Ephesians chapter number 2, John chapter number 13, that we, or chapter number 10 that we just read there, all of these verses say that God starts this on you. If you've been saved, settle in on that fact, and then you can move over into the rest, that he will perform it. Titus chapter number three, verse four and five says, but after that, the kindness and love of God, our savior toward man appeared. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. Mm. Now, I didn't know all that as an 11 year old, but as a 40 year old who thinks back to my 11 year old conversion, I'm thinking to myself, that's exactly what happened that night. I was washed through his regeneration. He made me alive. I was born again because I was dead in my first birth because the wages, the earnings for my sinning had led to that death. And he washed me. The renewing. I got to talk about washing a little bit more. We used to have dogs. I don't have dogs anymore. I'm not anti-dogs. I have cats now. Mainly because they... Well, I'm not going to tell you why. It'd be gross. There are reasons. Cats are more hygienic. That would be the idea. Somewhat. They're hairy though. Oh, the cat hair. Maybe I'm repenting of myself with the cats. I'm having a crisis here, okay? <laughs> we used to have these dogs. And you had to wash them. I'd wash this dog. I had a little dog named Buddy. And his name fit him. That's just what he was. He was a little buddy. He was a little short fox terrier. He would kill everything. He would bring me stuff. He would go hunting on his own. He would bring me things he had killed. Well, they did a subdivision with a sodded yard and a two-car garage and everybody's house looked the same. But he didn't need to be killing me stuff and bringing it to me in the subdivision. My neighbor would be like, ugh. We, we had a pond. All of our houses backed up to this pond and, and you could go fishing down in this pond. Well, like, buddy would bring me fish. And I thought, this dog is amazing. Like, I've never, I didn't know what a dog could fish. I would tell people, they're like, my dog fishes. Your dog doesn't fish. But like, well, where else did he get these fish? 
So we had this, they called a community homeowners meeting. Someone had a complaint because somebody's dog had been getting in their koi pond and killing all their fish. <laughs> and had torn the liner. I mean, like, I, I, something happened and we just had to leave that meeting all of a sudden. I think Shanae got sick. We weren't even there. We got a fence. But we, I remember Wash Buddy. And this always, when I would watch this dog, it would make me think of the way it feels when you realize you're saved. You realize that you've been washed in the blood of Christ. You've been made white as snow. This dog would get out of that bath. And you know how they do. They'd shake all this stuff off them all over. And then they just sprint. It's like they're so glad to be clean of all these impurities. And they sprint through the house and they air dry their fur. And then they'll, I did say through the house. I know, we don't have dogs in the house anymore. And, and they would roll around and they would just have this look on their face like, oh, I'm clean. That's how I feel when I think about my regeneration, my washing of regeneration. And then this renewing of the Holy Ghost. I tell you, that's a, that's a daily thing, almost an hourly thing. I mean, it was a once for all thing at my conversion, but praise the Lord. He doesn't stop. He doesn't give up on me. Is he giving up on you? He's not giving up on you. Do you mess it up at times? Absolutely. Do you fail? Do you sin? Do you get discouraged? Do you quit? All of these things. And then He just renews us. He makes us over again. How? Through His Holy Spirit. This is one of His ministries to us. So Paul says, He who began. What did He begin? A good work. Romans 8 verse 29 lays out in my world the best definition of what is this good work that He began. For whom He did foreknow. He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. God is working to conform us to the image of Christ. He's not trying to make us divine. He's making us sanctified. And how does sanctification work? Knowing us ahead of time. Did your parents ever play that game with you? They kind of knew you were going to get yourself into a mess, but they went ahead and let you fail. But they did it with some safety because they said, we knew what you were going to do. We know you. Well, who knows you better than God? Nobody. So foreknowledge, knowing you ahead of the time, he predestinated you. What did he do? He put you on a path. What does that path lead to? Sanctification. That sanctification leads to glorification, to be like Christ. Well, who better could put you on that path and it be a settled and sure thing? But God. Nobody. The preacher can't do that for you. There's not a teacher in this place or in this world who could do that for you. But Almighty God can. And that's what He has done here. He who began this work in you will perform it. How? Because it's a good work. He foreknew you. He predestined you that you might be the firstborn among many brethren. He's working to conform us to the image of Christ. Warren Wiersbe writes about a good work like this. He says that the good work God does for us is salvation. The good work that God does in us is sanctification. And the good work that God does through us is service. Let me lay that out well. This is what God started and this is what God will perform. And that's the end of that verse. Verse 6. Paul is confident that he which hath begun this good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. He will perform it. Now don't think of this as completed. I know, I know some translate it that way. But I'm going to go with perform is the best translation here. It's obvious that he will complete it. And there are other verses that tell us that he will complete it. But Paul says here he will perform it until then. 
So we are saved, period. He's already established that in other language here. But for us now, he is performing this work in us. Why is this important? Think about it. Somebody completes a thing. What can you do with it? You can remember it. You can talk about what it is that they have done after it. But when someone is performing a thing, you can experience it as much as desired. That's better. You can perform it over and over and over again. What did you make for lunch, Amber, darling? How long have you been making that that I've known you? Since I was 13 years old? Yep. Yep. I am not complaining about that meal. I'm looking forward to it. Sinead told me this morning, Aunt Redonna's cooking lunch. I said, praise the Lord. And I said, what is Aunt Redonna making for lunch? She said, I'm pretty sure she's making roasted potatoes. And I said, God is on the throne. <laughs> now you'd say, well, wait a minute. Since you're 13 years old and for a while, that was kind of the, that is the Sunday dinner, isn't it? If Aunt Redonna's going to make Sunday dinner, she's usually roasting potatoes. It's not that she doesn't have a repertoire. She makes a lot of other wonderful things. I've been eating her food since I was 13. You judge for yourself. I used to be a skinny guy. I used to be Henry. Stand up, Henry. (laughs) I turned into this. We're blaming that Redonna, not by eating, right? (laughs) So there's a word to the wise, Henry. You should probably eat lunch with Luke, baby. (laughs) Do I want her to complete this meal and be done with it and never make it again? No. I want to eat it again in two Sundays from now and, and three months from now. Why? Because it's good. It's fantastic. Matt, does your granny do this for you? Yeah. You want her to just stop cooking? You want her to just stop cooking? No. Perform it, right? Perform it. We, we kind of like it in the Christian faith. We sort of want it to get done, but what's better? I mean, done and dead, I'll take that. But if I'm going to be living on this earth, I want him to perform this good work into me, in me until that day. This is what Paul is saying here. That's the relationship we have with God that he is working in our lives. If it were just a one and done, all we could ever really do is bask in the work that it had only happened. But realizing that he's daily working on us and in us, we're able to constantly experience and share what God is doing for us. He began this work in you. And he will faithfully perform it in you until the day of Christ. The third heading that Paul gives here is fruit. Verse 19 and 11. God has saved us that we might become fruitful. He intends for the character of Christ to be reproduced in us. And this I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment that you may approve things that are excellent that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and the praise of God. James Montgomery Boyce said, we are to do good works that Christ might be glorified and that many might be brought to faith in him. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. So let your light shine before men. Why? So that they may see your good works and then yeah, fruit. So let's look at that here from verse 9, 10, and 11. This is what Paul desires for them here. It's what he wants for them. What he wants for them in verse 9 is to abound. And this I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. It's a love according to knowledge. Knowledge of God, 
Religious knowledge, spiritual knowledge, doctrinal knowledge. A knowledge that comes to the Christian through the study of God's word. It's a love according to knowledge. It's also a a discerning love. Discernment is this Holy Spirit gift given to the believer. To be able to understand. He enables us to understand how love should operate. It's a discriminating love. Paul says that we are to discern what is best. This I pray that your love may abound, what? More and more in knowledge and in all judgment. The translation here comes from the Greek word carrying a meaning of testing money to see if it's counterfeit. The testing of a political candidate for office. So he says we should exercise that kind of judgment here in this regard. The Christian life must abound in love. What are we without love? We're nothing. At best, we're noisemakers. So, what does he want for them to abound? Verse 10, why does he want this for them? Approval. That you may approve things that are excellent. That you may be sincere and without offense until the day of Christ. The word Paul uses here is oven-tested. I want you to be approved. I want you to be oven-tested. He's, he's speaking into their culture of pottery in their day. And it was a very large industry. Pottery varied in quality. The cheapest pottery was thick and solid. It didn't require much skill to make. But the finest pottery was thin. It had a clear color. And it brought a very high price. The fine pottery was very fragile. It would often crack in the oven. Cracked pottery should have been thrown away, but dishonest dealers were in the habit of filling in the cracks with this very hard pearly wax that would blend in with the color of the pottery and hide the defect. These cracks were basically undetectable in these shops. They didn't have these bright lights like we have. It was a little bit dimmer in those shops or under these canvas awnings that they would have, and you, you wouldn't be able to always see this. So they would go and hold it up before the sun so that they could find out if it had these cracks or not. Because these cracks filled with wax would be detectable by the light of the sun. So honest dealers who didn't practice in this way would mark their product with the caption, Sign Sarah, Sincera, right? S-I-N-E-C-E-R-A. It means without wax. So like when somebody signs a note to you now and says sincerely. They, they, they're, they're playing off on that. I, I'm not saying that. I'm saying this to you in a without wax kind of way. I'm not trying to har- hide my defects when I, when I write this to you. These pottery dealers would write that caption on their pottery or well. What is Paul saying then here? The Christian's life should be oven texted, tested, and it should be without wax when it's held up to Jesus Christ the Son. Surely we can't live perfect, but the flaws in our lives must not be covered up with wax. In this life, you're always going to have flaws. But we don't need to disguise them artificially. We disguise them in the righteousness of Christ. Don't disguise them at all, do we? We must be sincere. James Boyce says God's love will not flow through a Christian whose life is a sham. Hypocrisy will stop the flow. Cracked pottery... In the physical world, it's best thrown out. Aren't you glad that God doesn't throw us away? Live your life without wax. Watch the potter use you. So Paul lays out for them, what do I want for you? I want you to abound. 
Verse number 10. Why do I want this this for you? Because I want you to live with this approval. Verse 11. How should you accomplish this? Being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and the praise of God. Live a life where the spirit is working. Live a life that is full of the fruits of the spirit. We do this by being in Christ. In Christ, a life filled with the spirit's fruit happens and it doesn't have to be made to happen. Trying to exhibit fruit in your life, trying to live as if you are this fruit-filled life without being a Christian is very counterproductive. It's not how we're intended to live. It's not the case laid out for us in the Scriptures. It's not do the best you can and hope it works out in the end. No, it's live in the best Christ could do and then let those fruits come out through you. But the the counterproductive approach that we often have is I'm going to neglect the Holy Spirit. I'm going to neglect the Word. I'm going to try my best to be right before God, but in neglecting the Word and the Holy Spirit, I'm never going to accomplish that. Well, what does our life look like as we run around trying to do good works? Is it good works that the world sees and glorifies our Father in heaven? No. I'll tell you what we're like. We're like that child who went out and played in the mud. When mother or father says, don't you get out there in that mud. You know how this works? We're getting family portraits made this afternoon. I've already cleaned behind your ears. What does the kid do anyway? Plays in the mud. That's what children do. But then to cover the fact he plays in the mud, he's going to say, I'm going to make sure mom's happy with me. So how do I make mom happy with me? Well, I'm going to clean my room with muddy feet. So he picks up his toys and he makes his bed. And mom comes in and says, what did you do? And he's like, how does she know? There's muddy footprints. And there's a muddy bedspread. This is what our lives are like often. We're trying our best to push out this fruit that we think God wants us to be exhibiting. In reality, what He wants us to do is just be in the Word and light up the Spirit and let this fruit of the Spirit just grow through us. Saints up against that, I, I want you to be encouraged. We have this fellowship that is for our edification. It's to build us up. We have this faith that in reality is not even our own. In fact, you can make the case according to Scripture that if you're exercising your own faith, that it is a sin-cursed faith that will not please God. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. The grace and the faith are not of ourselves. What are they? They are the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Is it encouraging to you to know that God has just kind of supplanted himself down into your life? He's making you like Christ. You didn't have to earn it. Now, I'm not saying it's not laborious. Is that, is that a word? Laborsome? Laborious. Got to get somebody from up north who knows how to talk them words real good to help me out here. Thanks, Greg. It's not laborious. So just pick easier words. It ain't that much work. Some of you know what I mean now, don't you? I was wondering what he was talking about. This is encouraging to me. I've got this family now. My, I don't have to depend upon my cousins or my brother or my sister. It's you guys, and we're in this together. We have this fellowship. Yes, I'm going to give Joe a hard time about big... Blue losing, but if I need prayer, I'm going to say, Joe, pray for me. (laughs) That's not helping me, Joe. (laughs) 
Some of you, uh, many of you talked to me a, a few Sunday mornings ago during the Bible study hour. I just, boy, I couldn't get going. I couldn't get my words out. I couldn't get focused. And I said, Pastor Scotty, would you please pray for me? And we stopped and he prayed. And it was like the Lord turned the light switch on and off we went. And you guys ask about that. That's what it's like. You get up and you start your day tomorrow and it's just miserable. And you're like, I'm not supposed to have a miserable day. What do I need to do? You need, there should be someone in this room right now, or maybe they're, you know, maybe they're on spring break. But somebody who's usually in this room that you say, hey, look, this is what's going on. Will you pray for me right now? And they pray for you right now. And you should expect the Holy Spirit to make a difference through that prayer. That should be an encouragement to us, not a chore. And then this faith that God is working on our behalf, this is an encouragement. And then this fruit. It's not me running around trying to make sure there's apples and oranges and pears. Peace, love, joy, patience, goodness. No. It's the world around me understanding that these people are putting out different fruit than we do. We're not exactly sure how they do it. Maybe we should investigate. We have privileged saints. It's by God's grace and His peace that He's put into us as His servants. It includes our fellowship, our faith, and our fruit. All of this performed by our triune Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And there's two ways you can not be encouraged here. Number one, if you're not in the faith. I would assume all of you are who chose to get up on a Sunday morning and come sit through preaching and hymn singing are believers, but maybe you've been deceived or maybe you just don't understand. The gospel is plain. In your own, you're a sinner and you cannot achieve what we're talking about here. But God, through Christ's work on the cross and dying and shedding his blood for you, has achieved this and gifted it to his church that we can receive it. We talk about here singing the word, we did that. Reading the word, we've done that. Praying the word, we've done that. Preaching the word, we've done that. There's another one, it's seeing the word. We're about to do that. We have the Lord's table here. And this very thing I just laid out for you, which we call the gospel, you're about to see it. Take and eat this bread, it's my body broken for you. Drink and eat this juice, it's my blood shed for the remission of your sins. We're gonna see the word this morning. But if you're unsaved, all of this is vague to you. I think there's another area where this could not be an encouragement is for those of you who are saved, but you're lording over your own lives instead of submitting to him as Lord of your life. It's easy to do. You have your plans, you have your dreams, you have your ideas, you have your little form of what you think life should look like and you, you kind of want to lord it over, lord over it yourself and just ask God to bless it. He doesn't work this way. In fact, he will often in your life require of you Something completely, radically different. Even if he doesn't actually require it of you, he'll require you to submit to it to test your faith. To try you like gold refined in the fire. The fire will not harm you. It's part of his design. But he will refine your gold. Who's Lord? If Jesus is not Lord of all, he is not Lord at all in your life. Let's stand to pray.